Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. I want to start by asking you all a hard thing. Bring to mind someone who might have hurt you or someone of whom you're a little bit afraid, or someone who just makes you uncomfortable. Bring that person's face to mind. Bring to mind the presence of that person. It's a hard thing. But this word from the Lord is one that we need to hear with the presence of that person in our heart. Let me pray for us and then read the word from Matthew again. Oh, Father, we turn our hearts to you, to your love. Lord Jesus, light of the world, word of God, would you show us your way today? Holy Spirit, we invite you to rise up in us, to make us responsive to your word. Open our hearts, dear Lord, and lead us in your way. Amen. So hear this again. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm going to walk us through this amazing passage in three parts. What is Jesus not saying? What is Jesus saying? And what's the good news? What's he not saying? What is he saying? And what's the good news? So what's Jesus not saying here? First, Jesus is not invalidating the law. This text is found in the beginning middle of Matthew's biography of Jesus, and it's in the midst of a sermon given to followers who followed him up a hill. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing the Mosaic law, and he starts by saying this, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
So Jesus is not coming and saying, you know that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing? Canceled, it's gone. That was worthless stuff. He's not canceling the law. In fact, this law appears in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It must be important. Its intent is to control excess in revenge. And it's a law given to judges for the sake of systemic justice. It's set up to form a justice system rather than letting power run amok. In an unaccountable system, someone powerful could say, you knocked out my tooth, so I'm going to kill you. And this law said, no, not even the powerful can do that. What do you do? You go to a judge who administers something just and equitable. Jesus is not taking that law away. He's not saying there's no need to protect the vulnerable. He's saying something different that we'll get to. Second, Jesus is not just moving the basket as if we're coming to the 10-foot hoop to shoot at an eye for an eye, and then all of a sudden, it goes up and it's 30 feet tall at turn the other cheek. Jesus is not tricking us and changing the standard of systemic justice. He's not just moving the goal. As we've seen in recent weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing a habit of the Pharisees where with this and other permission. So in this case, with a tooth for a tooth, the Pharisees were turning from something that protects those who would be at risk to you ought to get everything you can get out of the law. How has someone harmed you? Does anyone, has anyone done something to you? What can you get from them? Let's be precise. Let's get it all out. So Jesus is not just changing the goal in this case. He's offering an alternative to this vision of the law as permission. He's not just offering a higher standard of depressing, detailed perfectionism. He's doing something very different, which we'll get to in the next section. Third, Jesus is not offering societal and governmental ethics in this case. He's not speaking to the government. He's not saying you should not have laws for justice and equity. I believe that the Bible does have things to say about governmental and societal ethics, but this is not where the Bible addresses those things. So some, for example, take this turn-the-other-cheek thing and make a case for governmental pacifism. Is there a case for that in the Scriptures? You can find out for yourself if you try hard enough. But this is not that case. 
The Sermon on the Mount is not a treatise on systemic justice. Rather, it is deep personal ethics for followers of Jesus. Get that? The Sermon on the Mount is not a treatise on governmental ethics. It is deep personal ethics for those of us who are following Jesus. And it's deep. Our call as individuals and communities of believers, and it's deep. So let's not get distracted by political philosophy this morning. So Jesus is not invalidating the law. He's not just moving the goal, and he's not making a case for the government. What is he trying to say here? What Jesus is saying is meant to be utterly astounding and challenging to us. In each of the sections of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying over these weeks, if you've missed some of the sermons, catch them on the podcast. They're brilliant. In each of these sections, Jesus has been making a call that is deep and challenging and compelling. And this section, as much as any other, he begins, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a vision of radical generosity and nonviolence. It's vulnerable. It is the call to die to ourselves, not think about our own interests. It's the opposite of the permission interpretations of the law, right? That's self-absorbed and thinking, what can I get? In fact, it's turning outward to think about the other. Bring back to mind, if you can, the face of that person who frightens you or has, has hurt you or makes you uncomfortable. Ask Jesus how Jesus sees that person. Let me offer a word here, an interlude about issues of abuse and danger. Safety and protection from repeated abuse is important. The heart of God is interested in that. It helps us to hold clear that this is a relational posture that Jesus is giving us, not a rejection of laws, not a legal posture. And there are times, in fact, in the Scripture that Jesus or Paul make a case for the protection of the vulnerable, for the enforcement of laws that, that protect the vulnerable and enforce equity. In abusive situations, it's okay to engage justice systems for protection. It's why the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth does incur, occur in Scripture. Be safe and don't 
perpetuate abuse, report abuse as needed. It's right that there are protections. But Jesus, relationally, in this passage, is inviting us to vulnerable generosity. Jesus is inviting us to love those where we experience hurt or fear or discomfort. It's a call to radical, vulnerable generosity. Is there a hurt in your life that feels like a slap on the cheek? Is Jesus inviting you to turn the other? Is there a place that feels unfair to you? The context of the cloak and tunic thing is in a lawsuit, they could take your outer garment, but the inner garment was protected. They couldn't take that. Jesus says, even that. Is there an unfairness in your life where Jesus might be challenging you to just become more generous in that place? Is there a place where someone with power is asking something you don't like? The context of the go the extra mile is this. In the first century, a Roman soldier could come up to any of us and command us to carry his gear for one mile. It was limited to one mile. But anywhere in the midst of what you're doing, he could come and say, right now you're taking my bags and we're walking that way. Jesus speaks to that and says, Don't be all ticked off and hurt about that. Consider just going another one with that person that God loves. Is there a situation like that where power is demanding something of you and you're inclined to be petulant about it? Is there something like that? Might Jesus be inviting you? Is there someone some more? Is there someone who's asking for a gift or a loan and Jesus is telling you, be generous? So challenging, isn't it? Crazy stuff. Continuing on, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, this one feels a little bit more soft and mushy, you know, to have a feeling toward your enemy. No, actually, it's harder. It's more. It turns from our reactions to our plans and our actions toward others. First of all, the command to hate your enemies, is that in the Bible? Uh-uh. Not at all. Actually, this is one of those kind of mental gymnastics of legalism that says, God tells us, love our neighbor. We must get to really hate the other guys. So it's not in the Bible at all. 
But Jesus is challenging that instinct in us to set these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and saying, no, love the ones who might seem like your enemies. Here's how I've been thinking about it. The command to make yourself present and vulnerable to others in love, especially to those who may be across some kind of barrier in places of hurt or tension or fear to turn toward those people, to step in, to steer into the place of tension and become present in love to those people. Let me tell you a story of my own failure this week. I was in a meeting with a team of two colleagues that I really care for, and we're planning something together. It's going to be awesome. We're working on this plan. And they start to snipe at each other. And then it became a real conflict where they were talking about hurt and safety and intentions. And you know what I did in that meeting, all the way to the physical level, I just started sitting back because it made me super uncomfortable that they were going after each other. And I just waited out the storm. I learned later that my posture, my presence, my silence communicated to these friends, I'm not involved. I just want to get away. I'm not invested in your feelings. I'm not invested in what you care about. I had the opportunity to make myself present in love to a real tension in a room with people who aren't even my enemies. And I chickened out because my instincts are to withdraw, but not to step in, not to love. What's being called for in this word is deeper than Scandinavian stoicism. It's better than the very best of Midwest nice. It's not paying attention to what do I have to engage with, but rather steering in, stepping in, making ourselves present. It's radical, aggressive, shocking generosity that Jesus is asking for. Allow me to draw two examples from contemporary culture. You want those? All right, thank you. First, an example from implicit bias, our unconscious preference for some kinds of people over others. So there's this whole movement and discussion in our culture around implicit bias, and there are tests and training related to it. And the fascinating thing, if you're interested in geeking out on these things, is the discussion on whether the training works or not these days. The jury is actually out on whether the implicit bias against implicit bias training changes people. 
But here's what's agreed upon in the research. Those tests actually show us something about the way we're biased toward and against certain kinds of people. There's not a lot of argument about that. We don't love people equally. If you think you are particularly woke, take some of those assessments and you might find out you're less woke than you thought. I did several of them in the last week and it's frankly a little bit humiliating because it demonstrates in hearts of even unconsciously, even in the background of our minds and hearts, we prefer some kinds of people over others in terms of race or gender or class or other ways we divide people up. What Jesus is doing here is asking us to practice a very conscious bias toward every class of people we might be unconsciously biased against. Do you see that? He's asking us to make ourselves present in love across any barriers that we might see. Where are there barriers in your neighborhood around race or class or gender or something else? Where are there barriers in your workplace community? Jesus is asking us to consciously bias ourselves toward those who might be our enemies, toward those who might be across some kind of barrier or boundary. Do you see how radical that is? Second example is from uh, what gets labeled canceling culture. Some of the current campus and protest culture encourages us where we care deeply about something and there are strong voices on the other side of that issue that actually you don't have to listen to those people. It's going to hurt you. You've got you to protect your resources to some degree so you can kind of cancel the humanity of those voices. You can say, I'm not, I'm not taking any more of that blankety-blank. It allows us to rid ourselves of tensions, and it deepens the echo chamber already reinforced by all of our social media patterns. It allows us to hear voices that agree with us, agree with us, agree with us, and shut off the other ones. Jesus says no. Jesus says you can't love your neighbor and hate your enemy if you're following me. Actually, you're supposed to intentionally turn, turn to the other voice and engage the humanity of that voice, that person, that community in love. Bringing that person to mind again who maybe hurt you or scared you or made you feel uncomfortable. Are you able to pray for that person? 
Are you able to turn toward them and make yourself present in love? Take off the protections and engage with that person. We've seen what Jesus isn't saying and some of what he is saying. And it's troubling, isn't it? It leads us to the tension. It's impossible. It's frightening. It might be a little bit depressing what Jesus is calling us to. And then he piles on it at the end of the passage and he says, be what? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Doesn't that break us a little bit? It's like, oh gosh. Why'd you say that at the end? <laughs> Let's look at what's the good news. Pay attention, this is the good part. The good news is the love of God. The good news is the love of God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father. Let me start by saying the word perfect here is teleos. It's not the perfection of perfectionism. It's not the perfection of getting every piece right. It's, it refers to the end point, the destination, the destiny. Another kind of translation would be grow up and become mature and complete like your heavenly Father is. He's calling on family imagery here. Do you see that earlier in the passage? He says to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. There's a family resemblance thing going on here. An invitation to think about the completeness and holiness of God. See that, that be perfect command? It's not an invitation to think more about ourselves. Again, it's the invitation to think about the completeness, the goodness, the holiness, the And that makes it good news. So let's look, let's look at God, starting with a, a brief tour of our other passages from this morning. Jesus refers to the sun and the rain, right, in Matthew. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and unjust. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 65 that we were reading earlier? In such beauty. So look back at that psalm on page 7. There are these amazing images of God in verse 9 who visits the earth and waters it abundantly who makes it, it very plenteous. The river of God is full of water. He prepares the grain. He drenches the furrows and smooths out the ridges. And this morning in the snow, I was thinking, 
this needs a stanza about the snow. There's something of the beauty of God's provision, the beauty, abundance, provision, the love of God that he spreads on his whole creation that's supposed to give us a sense of comfort and abundance. There's something uh, they refer to as general revelation, what God has put in the very nature of creation that speaks his beauty and wonder. The New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's another passage where I think we often get it wrong by our perfectionism. We think that 1 Corinthians 13 says, you really ought to be more patient. You really should be more kind. You should not be envious or boastful. But that's not what this word is about. It follows on a passage about gifts and what we should ask for from God. And then it, it waxes eloquent about the love of God that is patient and kind and not envious and not boastful and asks us actually to grow up into his grown children, to become more like him in the midst of a command to ask for these gifts. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that encouraging? And Deuteronomy, God taught his people in the wilderness and provided for them with manna day upon day upon day to teach them what? To teach them that his word is like food for us. It's not like depressing perfectionist goal setting. It's like food. It's like good discipline from a parent to a child. Looking at God from the, the breadth of the God theme of receiving and giving. Many of us in small groups have been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and you remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter 10, Jesus said, freely you have received, therefore freely give. There is a receiving the love of God that empowers us to give the love of God to others. And in the beginning of this sermon, the beginning of this chapter of Matthew, Jesus speaks a, a number of these poetic phrases. Does it start obligated are the poor in spirit, for they need to get ready to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Does it start stressed are the merciful, for they need a lot of mercy? No. This sermon starts blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful. We receive the love of God as we're asked to give this radical, vulnerable, generous love to others.
and the great bookends of the Gospel of Matthew are about God making himself present to us in love. The story of Jesus begins with him getting the name Emmanuel, God with us. And at the very end, the last words of this Gospel of Matthew, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God did not have to, and he didn't take his own rights, but he chose to become present to us in love. He became vulnerable. He loved his enemies. Jesus very literally was hit on one cheek and turned the other. Jesus very literally, Jesus gave up all of his clothing under abuse. Jesus literally went the extra mile. Jesus literally gave to all who asked from him. Do you see? Do you see? This passage is not demand to us. It's first the story of Jesus asking us to follow him, to live in the family way, to grow up into the love of the Father. Who are we in the story when we see it this way? First, we're the enemies who've received love and prayer. We are the one who's slapped and sued and demanded and begged. And the Father has shown us his love. This is an invitation to receive and give the love of the Father, not a demand to perform. Do you see how that's good news? It breaks us in its demands, but it's good news because of the Father's love. We're all vulnerable. We're all afraid. But the invitation is to first look at God and receive his love and then give it away to others. Let me close with a story about my grandma, who we always called Grams. She died a long way back at age 96. And about a year before she died, a guy kept coming to her, a young man, and asking to borrow money. And Grams kept saying yes to this young man who came to her. Grams was down about $20,000 when my Uncle Kurt found out about this pattern. And he was livid. First of all, he was angry at this guy and wanted to hunt him down. And second, he wanted to lock down Grams' money, which she didn't have much of. So he actually did that, left Graham's control over a very small amount of what she had. And you know what she did? You can guess. The young man came back to her, and she gave him what, he, what she could again. 
It made Uncle Kurt even more mad in the end. And I had this sense of revelation after watching Grams go through this situation. I realized I really want to be like her more than I want to be like Uncle Kurt. And I wrote her a card that said, when I get old, I want to be like you, Grams, because you're kind of like Jesus. Could she have interacted differently with that guy? Was she naive? Maybe. Was she childish? That's what Kurt thought. I think she was a grown-up Christian. I think she was treating somebody like Jesus treated her. What's Jesus inviting you to related to the person you were thinking of at the beginning? I want to invite you to get prayer ministry if you're stuck in a place like that, and especially if you feel locked in vulnerability and the need to experience the love of God in order to give it away. When we're in the midst of communion, there'll be prayer ministers at the back, confidential, ready to pray the love of God into your heart. Pray with me as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, for pushing us to the brink of our own despair that we don't have the love of God in us. And thank you, Jesus, for offering us grace upon grace along with truth. Lord, we pray that you would unlock our hearts to receive the abundance, the lavishness of your love. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our hearts up and teach us to love like you. Amen. Amen.